0: Lately, when people ask me if Anne Reed is a member, I say, no, I, I think she's our muse. <laughs> Strange as it may seem, only 450 years ago, in the so-called Western world, in the European so-called civilization, people saw the universe like this. At the center of the universe, the cosmos, at the center of all that is, was the earth, an unmoving mass, a very special place made of rock and water and plants and animals, the focal point, us. Revolving around the earth was a series of concentric spheres, transparent spheres, invisible to us like glass bubbles, one inside the other. The planets and stars were attached to these invisible spheres and rode around on them. The spheres were pushed by angels. Far out in the tenth sphere, God reigned in heaven. So every prayer had to make it all the way out there. Every now I lay me down to sleep. This was reality, assumed and rarely questioned. Well into the Renaissance, this was the model that made sense of life. Religion, government, art, morality all found their place in relation to this scheme. This view had worked pretty well for centuries, but by about 1500, certain problems became more apparent. As astronomers continued to observe and gather data, the model became more of a challenge because the data didn't fit. Nevertheless, when new facts came in, facts that didn't fit, Astronomers forced them into the model by attaching new doodads and imaginary parts onto the big invisible spheres. They stuck smaller invisible spheres. They added quants and deferents and major and minor epicycles and some really far out parts called eccentrics. Until at last the contraption had 80 or 90 moving parts and nobody really understood the thing. The respected Polish astronomer Copernicus called it a monstrous system. When the Pope asked Copernicus for advice on redesigning a Christian calendar based on this system, Copernicus replied with whatever you say in Polish or Latin to mean you can't get there from here. (laughs) Copernicus, a man of faith, believed that this universe, this sacred cosmos, had to be a thing of elegance and order. He longed for a fresh perspective, The the radical thing he did was he set aside that cumbersome model with the loops and curlicues, that increasingly frustrating architecture, and he looked only at the data. He also read history and noticed that someone in ancient Greece had proposed a different model in which the sun, the wild, unmanageable, life-giving sun, was placed at the center and the earth circled around it. When Copernicus plugged all the data into this sun centered model, the facts fell into place. At the time when word got out, most of the Western world viewed the notion as too silly for comment, except to say that if the earth was moving, cows would be flung out of barns and bread would fly out of ovens. Martin Luther called Copernicus a fool, and the Catholic Church put Copernicus' book on the prohibited list. Poets were confused. The sun is lost, and the earth and no man's wit can well direct him where to look for it. So many had so much invested in the old story. In the end, of course, it took another century. The sun-centered model won. There were still bugs to work out. We still needed Galileo to come along with his telescope and Kepler with his elliptical orbits. But in time, the Copernican shift came to symbolize The entry into what we call the age of enlightenment, the modern era, with all its new energy and with so many doors opening in science, in travel, in art, in religion. And Richard Crashaw, a poet, made the best of it when he wrote, God breaks through all ten heavens to our embrace. Here's another story, and this one's um, not 450 years old. This was just a few weeks ago. It came to me from member Annie Tutela with family permission to share. She and her partner, Chris Burr, have two elementary school daughters, Isabel, 10, and Ava, 6. Annie said, I she said, I overheard this conversation when I was in the car with my daughters, Isabel and Ava, and Isabel's new friend who didn't know our family. Isabel and Ava were talking about bringing some candy home to Mama. This puzzled the friend because Ava and Isabel's mommy was behind the wheel driving. The friend kept asking what Ava was talking about, so Isabel informed her that they have two moms. Her friend said that's impossible. Isabel dug into the bag of tools, Annie says, that we have given them, and replied, one mom had me, and after some time went by, the other mom adopted me. Not knowing any gay families, the friend insisted that you have to have a dad. Into the bag, Isabel reached and pulled out her response. No, they went through a sperm bank to pick someone. (laughs) Annie said, I was so proud that she recalled all the talking points we'd given her. (laughs) Then, Then Isabel followed this up by saying that her moms were married. Of course, this was met with two women can't get married, to which Isabel responded, well... They were married in our church, and even though it's not legal in this state, we could have moved to another state where it would be legal, but they were married. (laughs) Annie said, what a moment this was for me. When Chris and I exchanged vows here in this church, I could not foresee the impact it would have on our daughters as they grew. It's allowed them to feel we are indeed a real family, regardless of what some in society think. And she ends... What can be more spiritual than that? Hmm. It's like the diagram of the universe redrawn so that love, that unmanageable, white-hot source of light, is right at the center where it should be, and all the other rules line up around it, elegant and simple. We humans prefer a manageable complexity to an unmanageable simplicity. Father Bruno Bruno Barnhart. I'll say it again. We humans prefer a manageable complexity to an unmanageable simplicity. In this month with its gratitude theme, I am grateful for Father Barnhart's intriguing statement. For me, it holds a magnifying glass between the sun's rays and that scrap of paper on the sidewalk, something f- focuses and ignites and an understanding of how we're wired and what our work is. It's just who we are. We like to feel like we've got things under control. We construct complex schemes and try our best to manage them, even when they grow awkward and un- unhelpful, even when they threaten to cut us off from something Essential. We prefer a manageable complexity. It doesn't have to be a big, ungainly model of the universe. Could be a healthcare system <laughs> with so many parties invested in so many moving parts. Could be a financial system with all kinds of complex components, bundled mortgages and credit default swaps and hedge fund schemes. Closer to home, it could be. The manageable complexity of a family system elaborately, though precariously, constructed to make room for a family member's intimate relationship with alcohol, a barely manageable complexity. Or it could be a system of religious morality, including rules about marriage, based on ancient, ambiguous texts from cultures writing centuries before scientific methods and the discoveries of biology Psychology and genetics. Preferring the manageable complexity. It's a human leaning. That's all I think Father Barnhart is saying. It's something to watch for, he's saying. It's something to be aware of, but it's not a stopping place. So in this month of gratitude, I'm giving thanks for all the simplicities we cannot manage I'm grateful for the unmanageable simplicity of truth. The sun will be where it will be, regardless of my opinion on the subject. The first time I pulled into the parking lot, nearly 30 years ago now, of a Unitarian Universalist church, the bumper sticker on the car in front of me said, Don't panic, no one is in control. (laughs) So I was home. I'm grateful for the unmanageable simplicity of love, that invisible force that moves us and feeds us. It will arise, it will arrive in its own time, in its own way, sometimes between partners of opposite sex, sometimes between partners of same sex. I remember well Chris and Annie's service of Holy Union. Ava and Isabel and the family and friends were right here. The music was Peter Mayer's song, Holy Now. You know that. Some of the words go like this. When I was in Sunday school, we would learn about the time Moses split the sea in two and Jesus made the water wine. I remember feeling sad that miracles don't happen still, but now I can't keep track because everything's a miracle. It used to be a world half there, heaven's second rate hand me down. Now I walk with a reverent air because everything is holy now. Everything, everything is holy now. Standing with this couple and before their people, I said to them, we recognize the miracle of what we're doing today. The poet, Audrey Rich, wrote once that any two people together is a miracle and two, wim- and two women together is a work that nothing in civilization makes simple. Chris and Annie, we know that you come before us today with a courage born of many small acts of will and with a beauty and dignity born of love. By what you do here today... You help slowly and surely to build a wiser, more open-hearted, more enlightened world. What we do today, the ceremony of union, is in a way a prayer for peace and wholeness on earth. It's a way of taking down walls to make more space for the sacred. What we wish for you, Chris and Annie and Isabel and Ava, is that you continue to live in the miracle. We want you and your family and your service to the world to flourish and thrive Our advice to you is only what you already know. Love justice, practice mercy, and live in the grace of simplicity all your days. Blessed are you and blessed are we by the life you share. I am grateful to be part of a faith tradition that keeps reminding me that the mystery at the center of life is trustworthy, that it wishes us growth, that it urges us toward richer connection and greater consciousness. I'm glad we sing Spirit of Life, come unto us, move in our hands, giving life the shape of justice. Anne Lamont, in the reading Stephen gave us, quoted Kathleen Norris, who said, Prayer is not asking for what you think you want, but asking to be changed in ways you can't imagine. In the mornings as the storm begins to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment and it seems to me that there has been something simpler than I could ever believe, simpler than I could have begun to find words for. Not patient, not even waiting, no more hidden than the air itself that became part of me for a while with every breath and remained with me, unnoticed. By what name can I address it? now holding out my thanks. Anne Lamott says she had to unlearn a lot of what she was taught early in life by well-meaning grown-ups. She says it took years for me to discover that the first step in finding out the truth is to begin unlearning almost everything adults had taught me. She, spiritually speaking, she's saying something important here. Cynthia Bourgeot, Episcopal priest and writer and wise woman, reminds us that at the visionary heart of so many religions, we find the same thing. The thing we find at the heart of these religions, she calls the invitation to upgrade our operating system. (laughs) We're born with a binary system wired into our brain and we spend our formative years getting skilled at using it, learning how to make distinctions, how to separate out, how to distinguish between this and that, blue or green, high or low, sweet or sour, them or us, gay or straight, right or wrong, good or bad, all the skills we need to do a good job of managing complexity. But, Cynthia says, there's another operating system inside us too, latent, one we eventually long to upgrade to. She calls this operating system unitive seeing, the non dual system, or heart perception. In this operating system, we're all one. It's like getting new eyes, but the eyes are looking out of the heart. It's like recentering our cosmos. And so, a mystic like Rumi, that wild 13th century Sufi, will say, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. He says, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. He says, to a frog that's never left his pond, the ocean seems like a gamble. Look what he's giving up. Security, mastery of his world, recognition. The ocean frog just shakes his head. I can't really explain what it's like where I live, but someday I'll take you there. Rumi says, you'll be forgiven for forgetting that what you really want is love's confusing joy. And Jesus, that wandering, enigmatic teacher, says, if you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself, not love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. As yourself, your neighbor is you. The child who needs the warm coat is me, no separation. It's radical when we really know this, who can predict where life will take us then. All this friends is to say in the light of this congregation's new day at the dawn of this new era in the life of our church, the beginning of our next 150 years, led faithfully and lovingly by our new senior minister, the Reverend Justin Schroeder. We are in such good hands. With new people arriving and longtime members returning, may we remember with thanks that we are about cherishing the simplicities and mysteries we don't control. May our prayer be not to get what we think we want, but to be changed in ways we can't begin to imagine. May we hear the universe and our forebears whisper to us, stay loose, expect miracles, accept holy bewilderment, meet in the field beyond wrongdoing and right doing. be gentle, be bold, reach out for each other, hold on to your hats. So be it. Amen.